Hi and greetings. This is uh, this is uh, Pastor Russell, and I'm in my office. And the reason I'm in my office, this is the first of our of our six sessions in our study on on last things, and uh, it is our intent, and, and and we'll be doing this. We're going to record these sessions as they happen in the fellowship hall. But what happened last Wednesday night, and the reason this recording is a little bit later making its way online, and the reason I'm I'm redoing it in my office is um, the the computer responsible for doing the recording in the fellowship hall. Um, it 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 kind of threw us a technological curveball, and 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 we didn't get a good recording last Wednesday night. Volunteers were doing everything right they were supposed to. It just got us. And if you've ever worked around computers. I've said enough. So this this week's recording is going to have more of a podcast feel as opposed to a teaching in front of a room full of people feel. And you know what? I'm, I'm likely to leave out in this recording something that I said in Fellowship Hall last Wednesday night because sometimes illustrations or specific ways of wording things occur to me in the moment. Uh, I'm also equally likely to say something in this recording that won't be just what I said last Wednesday night because something will occur to me as I do it this way. Uh, But the core content of the session will overlap. I'm teaching from the very same notes, so kind of away we go. As we begin this study, there's a very, very important affirmation you and I need to share. I'm the lead pastor of the McGregor Baptist Church. I'm an elder of the McGregor Baptist Church which means I am subject to the authority of the congregation, the body of Christ at McGregor Baptist Church. And I am subject to the confession of faith of that body of Christ. And the good news is you and I don't have to wonder what McGregor Baptist Church believes. On doctrinal matters, McGregor Baptist Church has overwhelmingly affirmed the Baptist faith and message. That is what this church believes. In fact, anybody who starts a sentence, well, at McGregor, we believe, and doesn't go right into the content of the Baptist faith and message, is speaking out of turn. Um, uh, There's a lot of diversity of viewpoint in our church on more topics than you and I could name, and that's okay. But on matters of the faith, where the Baptist faith and message speaks, it is what our church believes. And in light of that, if you, if, you, if you want to look it up online, it's not hard. Do a web search on Baptist Faith and Message 2000. I, I say that because there's a 1925 Baptist Faith and Message and a 1963 Baptist Faith and Message, which have been um, eclipsed by, and our church has adopted, the year 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. It's Article 10, speaks to last things. Let me read it to you. This is what McGregor Baptist Church believes about last things. God, in his own time and in his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end, according to his promise. Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth, the dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous, in their resurrected and glorified bodies, will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. So if you wonder what our church believes about last things, there it is. Um, To refine that further and say that our church believes that further refinement is a misstatement if you make it, it's a misstatement if I make it, it's a misstatement if anybody makes it, 
unless and until such time as the church adopts a, a different or more refined confession of faith, which she hasn't. So I wanted to be clear because, you know what, it's likely during the course of this study that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to share some things that you're going to enthusiastically agree with. It's equally likely during the course of this study because um, you and I uh, are, are individuals that I may say some things that are different conclusions than you hold. Uh, we are not obligated. In fact, well, let me go ahead and segue because I think we'll touch on some of this. The question of why comes up. I've uh, uh, not seen a lot of, of um, study of last things at our church in, in the years that I've been around McGregor. Um, lots of terrific Bible study has been done, but this topic is, is not one that we've circled back around to very often in my view. Uh, so the question comes, well, Russell, why are, we, why are we doing this now? In terms of the specific timing, this arose from uh, our study of the book of Luke. Months and months ago, reading ahead and, and structuring the gospel of Luke for our Sunday morning Bible studies, I, uh, I, I knew that we were going to deal with the, with the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' great end times sermon preached in the last week of his earthly ministry. And I knew that we, we couldn't skip it. And I knew that we'd have to deal with it. And in dealing with it, we would have to reflect a, a, an interpretive framework around that particular passage. Actually, we did it in two weeks back in the fall. In the course of doing that, it, it became pretty clear that we would hit some stuff, kind of, kind of touch and go in terms of systematic understanding of last things or systematic eschatology. But we might risk raising more questions than we did answers if we didn't give the topic a bit more time perhaps in another setting, because Luke needed, the Gospel of Luke study needed to move along. So here we come, and, and, and this study is a reflection of the need to, to go a little bit deeper into some of those topics. Specifically, I uh, have three, three objectives as sort of the, the instructor. Well, not sort of. As the instructor in this series, I've got three objectives, and it's very, very important to me that you hear me clearly on these three objectives. Um, let me, let me take one potential objective off the table right away. This is nothing that I am after. I am not after you agreeing with me. I, I trust that I will have the opportunity to get to know you. I, I very much love this body of Christ and those that are in it. Um, I'm not prone to pick fights. Um, and I am very much at ease if you and I disagree on a secondary matter, that is a matter that is, that is not essential to the faith and further not, not addressed in our church's belief framework, then it's very okay that we disagree. Um, I'm, I'm at peace with that and I'm not out to fix that and I'm not out to fix you. Uh, by the way, the other side of that coin is I'm not out to be fixed. Um, I, we, we believe what we believe. We walk together uh, in the unity of a confessed faith, and we're okay. We've got our Bibles, and we've got our, our church's confession of faith, secondary, of course, to the Bible. Um, I'm not, again, if, if, if at the end of this study you go, wow, he, he really wants me to agree with him. I, um, obviously, I wouldn't hate it, 
but that's not what I'm after. So what am I after? Number one, I'm after that you would know what you believe and why you believe it. If this study, even if, it, if in this study you disagree with the conclusions that I'm going to reach, specifically about the timing and sequencing of the next series of in-time events, if you disagree with me and that disagreement drives you more deeply into the study of God's Word and you're looking up stuff and checking passages and building your case and doing the work, my goodness, is that ever a win for me? That's, that's what I want you doing. That's, that's the whole um, intent of shepherding you as a teacher of the Word of God, that you would fall more in love with the Scripture and know what you believe and why you believe it. Second, I, have, I do have a, um, a desire that we would all understand that our faith is to be ready for trial and trouble. Whether or not one believes that Christians will pass through the period that we we typically call the tribulation or the great tribulation. Uh, John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trials. You will have tribulations. First Peter 4, 12 says, don't think a fiery trial that comes on you is anything unusual. Now I'm paraphrasing because I, I didn't want to reach over and grab my Bible yet, but I'm not wrong in my paraphrase. We are to have a faith, and I could quote 15 other scriptures. We, you and I, are to have a faith that is ready to pass through difficult times, external persecution times, trial and tribulation with a small t times. Um, if somehow you've, you've been brought along and a consequence of your pre-tribulationalism, if that's where you are, if you've, been, if you've been brought along and taught that God would never allow his people to go through something quite terribly difficult, I submit that the New Testament teaches very differently than that. Christian history teaches very different than that. And current events on earth in the winter of 2019 teach very differently than that. Uh, persecution and martyrdom even are a part of the Christian experience on our world today, maybe not in our neighborhood. So to say that God would not allow his people to go through difficult times is a problem historically, currently, and biblically. And I want you to have a, a, a battle-ready faith, a trouble-ready faith. And then third, that you and I would grasp the difference between primary matters, the deity of Christ tied to the virgin birth, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for sinners, that we would understand primary matters are just that, non-negotiable primary pillars of the faith versus secondary matters. Um, matters that we, we, we deem important and worth talking about, but matters where disagreement is, uh, is okay. And that we would, we would know how to love one another and that, frankly, loving one another is a primary matter. So those are my objectives, that we would know what we believe and why we believe it, that we would understand that we are to have a, a, a trial and trouble ready faith, and that we would grasp the difference between primary and secondary matters and the duty to love one another, even when we disagree on secondary things. That being said, here's, here's what I want to lead this series with. And I have a friend in here who is, uh, who is recording this for me, and I'm going to confess to that friend while we're, while we're rocking right along, I didn't pay attention to when I started uh, in terms of my time. So I don't know how much of something like an hour I've already consumed, 
Uh, and he's showing me on the screen, and I'm looking for... Okay, I'm 12 minutes in. All right, good. Uh, that, that helps me know, because guys, I could talk all day, and everybody who loves me just said amen. And some who don't love me as much just said amen. <laughs> By the way, the friend that's recording this with me is Bobby Kiesel, and I praise God for him, and he's an old friend that I've known and loved for a long time. All right, our title is Nine Things That Are Going to Happen. If, you, if you'll permit me, I've alliterated them. But it wasn't hard because a lot of the things we talk about just kind of start with R. So if you want to do the title, you can say nine things that are going to happen, and you can spell the word R out. Or you can play along with my pun and say nine things that are, with R in quotes, the letter R, going to happen. Nine things that are true about the future that the Word of God clearly teaches. Number one, the return. Number one, the return. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back literally. He is coming back physically. He is coming back for real. He told his disciples the night before he went to the cross, John 14, verse 3, uh, if, I, if I, I, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be there also. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. He's coming back. Acts 1 on the, uh, the Mount of Olives, as right after he ascended, the, uh, the, the guys that had been his disciples were, were kind of looking up at the sky, taking in that moment when, when Jesus had visibly kind of pulled a Superman right in front of them and taken off into the sky. And uh, beginning in verse 9 of Acts 1, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. The same terminology Luke, uh, author of both Acts and the Gospel of Luke, uses to describe the two angels at the tomb of Jesus, two men dressed in white. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Jesus is coming back, and uh, so many things, that's going to begin to set right. But we believe in the return. Roman rule 2, we believe in the rapture. Though the word is not specifically used in the New Testament, and everyone who is, uh, who's ever taught you about last things has, has made that statement, that the, the, word, the English word rapture is borrowed from a Latin word that is the, the Latin word for snatching or catching up. Um, we know about the rapture from, from 1 Corinthians. For example, 1 Corinthians 15. And I should have brought my computer Bible in here. I'd be faster, but that's okay. My paper Bible will do for this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52 uh, says, Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep. That means die. But we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will change. Um, we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. First Thessalonians chapter 4 describes in, in more detail, sort of internally, the, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ rising first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the air. And the, that, that word there, caught up in Greek, became a, a translation through the Middle Ages into a word in Latin that became our English word rapture. That's where that word comes from. Uh, the church will one day, the believers will be one day caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's coming. 
Roman numeral three, the resurrection, at that same time, and for all human beings, both the righteous and the unrighteous, there is coming a resurrection. Uh, we were in 1 Corinthians 15 a moment ago. Stay there for a second. Let me show you 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as Adam, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward at his coming the people of Christ. Um, all human beings will be resurrected into physical bodies and will physically enter eternity. The resurrection is a reality. Uh, that glorified body, that eternal body, can suffer pain. It cannot suffer death. Uh, saints in heaven will live forever in bodies. Heaven is a physical place, a physical reality. Likewise, hell. And that eternal, glorified, resurrected body is a body that can burn forever but not burn up. So it's both a glorifying, a glorious reality for those who are in Christ and a quite horrible reality for those who are outside of Christ that we're going to live forever and we're going to live forever in bodies as a manifestation of the resurrection. Number four, the reunion. The reunion. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, that, that, that classic rapture passage um, uh, let me let me get there. There I am. In my again in my paper Bible, uh, verse seventeen of First Thessalonians four uh, says, "Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them." Now the them are those who have died in Christ to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always we will always be with the Lord. Now we're going to be with the Lord. We are going to be together. 1 Thessalonians 3, just turn back about a page in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 3, 13 says, May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, which means all the saints that have died already must be with him because at his, at his appearing they will be with him. They're together. Now I know the centerpiece of the glory of heaven is Jesus Christ. And what every believer does and should look forward to most about heaven is being in the presence of Christ. But over and over again in Scripture, these, these plural pronouns are used. We will be with Christ. Um, uh, Jesus' statement, I go to prepare a place for you, talking about a, uh, that you is plural, that, that there is an us-ness, there is a we-ness, if you will, to the, to the fellowship of the saints in heaven. And I confess to you, maybe the older that I get, the more that, that really, really starts to matter to me. Um, my daddy is still alive and healthy, and I am blessed by that. He's, he is 30 years and four months older than I am. I was born in December of 61. He was born in August of 31, which means he's, he's 87 this year. will turn 88 in August, and he's still strong, and he's still healthy, and I'm glad. What a privilege it is for me as a 57-year-old that mom and dad are both still right here on earth loving Jesus and loving, loving, loving family and loving each other. Um, at any rate, I noticed 
just a few years ago that my dad had developed an unusual, what I thought unusual for him, tenderness about heaven. Dad's never been sappy. He isn't sappy. But when, uh, when heaven comes up, dad gets very emotional. He, uh, the, the tears stream and the eyes get a very far away look. And I know he's loved Jesus for a long time and I figured that was it. But I asked him one time, not all that terribly long ago, daddy, what is it? Why is it that heaven, because I've never known my dad to cry at the drop of a hat. What is it about heaven? And he said, son, and these were his exact words because I wrote them down. Um, He said, son, most, no. He said, son, the people that I have loved most are still on earth. My mom, my brothers, and our families. But most of the people I have loved his parents, his relatives, friends that he has known for years. Most of the people I have loved, he said, have gone before me into heaven, and I miss them, and I look forward to seeing them. You know, my dad's not wrong. My dad doesn't need me to say to him, Dad, forget about them. Focus on Jesus. All this we stuff in the New Testament and all this being together stuff in the New Testament is there for a reason, and the reunion that we'll have with each other is, is part of the glory of what we can look forward to, and that's number four. Number five, the restoration. The restoration. When the fall happened in Genesis 3, and the, and the resultant curse on the ground happened, and, uh, and weeds happened, and thorns happened, and avalanches, and, and busted stuff in a busted universe. You and I live not only among a human population, that is at war with God in our fallenness, left in our unsaved state. But the universe itself was corrupted by the sin of mankind. Mankind is the centerpiece of God's creation, the only thing in all of God's creation that explicitly um, packages the very image of God. And when that centerpiece of God's creation rebelled, mankind in the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, Not only did it corrupt mankind, it broke the universe. And at the end of things, for this heaven and earth, they're going to pass away, and a new heaven and earth, uncorrupted, is going to take their place. And it's going to be a restoration. Romans 8 actually speaks about this in Romans 8, verses 19 through 22. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with revelation, I mean with uh, labor pains until now. And then Revelation 21.1 just simply speaks, of a new heaven and a new earth, the restoration. Number six on my list of nine things, the the reckoning, the reckoning. I know, I know, I mean the judgments, but by the time I got this far in my list, I was rocking and rolling with R's, so I stayed with it. So the, 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 the judgment is coming. Now, really, um, and I'm gonna unfold these, There are three different judgments that we must consider when we look to the future judgment. Uh, One of them is the judgment of Satan himself. 
the word of God makes it clear in Revelation 20, verse 10, that, the, that Satan will be adjudicated guilty for his role in the corruption of mankind, and he'll be cast in the lake of fire to burn forever. You and I don't have to directly concern ourselves with that judgment because you and I aren't the object of it. Humankind will face one of two judgments. For those who do not come to faith in Christ, there is a judgment for sin. It's described also in Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. This is the, the judgment on the unbelieving world. Listen to how it, how it goes and pay special attention to how it ends. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Fast forward down to verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the judgment on sin. And it's the judgment on those who have not come to be in Christ. See, those of us who are in Christ will not be judged for our sin because our sin has been um, rendered irrelevant by the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It is, it is under the blood, so to speak. The, the record of wrongdoings has been eliminated against us, according to Colossians 1. We are no longer bound to the, the penalty for the sin we have committed. We stand before God in the track record of Jesus Christ by substitutionary atonement as far as our sin goes. I, I quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the pulpit, and truth be told, I probably quote it more Sundays than I don't quote it. Uh, he, became, he who did not know sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that pulls us out of the judgment on sin. We're just not there. But believers will face judgment. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I believe, I believe that's Romans 14.10. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my Bible and look that up and see if I got that right. I did. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, according to Romans 14.10. So what is, that, what is that judgment? Well, I think it's described in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 12 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, judge, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through uh, 15. If anyone builds on the foundation, that is Christ, with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it. That day being the day Christians are judged. Notice it is, it is the, the work of the Christian, uh, whether that, that Christian's life's work was something that heaven will deem to have been gold, silver, and costly stones, or whether it's wood, hay, and stubble, like the first two of the three little pigs. <laughs> because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved. Because, see, this is a judgment on believers. And salvation is not in view. 
and punishment of sin is not in view. What's going on here is a judgment on stewardship. You and I are going to face Jesus, and the, the question will be, here are the opportunities that you had. Here are the things that could have been. Here are what your life here is what your life could have meant for the sake of the kingdom. How do you do? And you know what I know? I know that's not going to be just a gloriously happy moment for any of us. Um, a very frequent note, back when I was a much, 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 much younger person, um, getting report cards with notes on them. And back in my day, of course, those were handwritten notes from the teacher. And probably the most frequently occurring note behind he runs his mouth too much, there's a surprise. The other frequently occurring note was Russell fails to live up to his potential. You know what? That's true. And I'm not happy about that. And one day I'm going to face Jesus. And you know what I think? I think some things might be uh, worthwhile. There might be a little bit of, of, Lord, you gave me this opportunity and I didn't screw it up completely. But there's going to be a whole lot of missed opportunity. There's going to be a whole lot of, wow, could that ever have been done more passionately or more effectively. And there's going to be some wood, hay, and stubble that's going to go whoosh and be gone. And then I'm going to cry about that. And then Jesus is going to wipe those tears away from my eyes. And I'm going to be eternally okay because of the death of Christ. Christian, if you've been taught that there's going to be some big foreboding video display where all your sins are going to be reviewed and you're going to be taken to task for them, you've just been taught wrong. And, and, and the gospel has meant more than that to you, and I'm glad. Because if you stand before God guilty of one sin, according to the book of James, you stand before God guilty of the whole thing, and you're cooked. The judgment on Christians is a judgment of stewardship. The sixth thing in our list was a reckoning. The return, the rapture, the resurrection, the reunion, the restoration, the reckoning. Number seven, the reign. The reign, based on beginning with promises made in the Old Testament, uh, that the, 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 the worldwide domination of the king of Israel in some future age would in fact happen, that Messiah would reign on the earth in a real kingdom. It's what those terribly misunderstanding people around the triumphal entry were asking for. It's what the disciples were asking for as late as the ascension. Jesus, at this time, are you going to set up your kingdom? No, not yet. We talk about the kingdom of God when we teach about it as sort of an already not yet. The already part of the kingdom of God is, is God's growing reign in the lives of his people. That, that he does rule and reign in the lives of his believers, and we reflect who he is in us out into a lost world. And in that sense, the kingdom is already. But the kingdom is also not yet. And there is coming a future day when every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is coming a day described in the book, again, I go back to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, who had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. There is coming a future reign, a 
in, in, in end time study typically called the millennial kingdom. And that is a very real future reality. There's coming a reign. Number eight on my list, there is coming a resemblance. A resemblance. What do I mean? Um, like you, I deal with a lot of a lot of problems and obstacles. Like you, I've always got a list of things that need my attention. And some of them go well and some of them don't. Um, I've got some problems that need working on all the time. Uh, when I taught this live with a, with a group of folks in the room, I asked the question, do you know what Russell's biggest problem is? And I very distinctly heard the voices of three of my very closest friends, two of whom are elders, call out. When I asked, what is my biggest problem? I heard them say, Russell, they're right. It's funny that my close friends jump right on that. I guess I should probably upgrade my friends, but I'll, uh, I'll deal with that at another time. <laughs> but you know what? They're right. My biggest problem is me, and your biggest problem is you. I have a, the most proficient liar in my life. Lying to me is me. My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, says Jeremiah 17, 9. Um, I have a liar inside my own head talking to me all the time seeking to deceive me. Not just mildly deceitful, but catch that, deceitful above all things. I am a more dangerous liar in my life than Satan is in my life, and he's the father of lies. He came up with the idea of lying, but my, uh, my flesh got really good at it because of the fall and too much practice, lying to me, myself about myself. But you know what's going to happen one day? 1 John 3, 2 says, I'm going to be like Jesus because I'm going to see him as he is. There's going to come a day when I am going to bear, though I will be Russell forever, I am going to bear the full manifestation of the image of God. He who has begun a good work in me, Philippians 1, verse 9, I think, let me look that up, I'm you know, Bobby, isn't that isn't that one nine? I think I it is. Um, da, 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 da. No, it is not. It is. Is it? It's amazing what scripture you know, guys, until you're recording. Um, well, you know the verse, and I'm not going to bog down on uh, video or on audio. He who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We're going to look like Jesus. Finally, number nine, the res the residence. Uh, and this is taking us a little less time than it took to teach in a room full of people because I'm not walking around the room and I'm not interacting with people, Bobby. So it's a, yeah. you, get, you get credit. The good news is, those of you who are listening to this and weren't able to be there in, in, in the room that night, you're going to get, you get credit for attending the whole class and it's only taking you like half the time. This is like the best college course ever. Uh, finally, number nine on my list, the residence. We're going to live forever in, a, in a, an amazing city called heaven. The new heaven, uh, sometimes also called New Jerusalem. Jesus has gone away to prepare a place for us, and he's working on it. And we're going to be forever with the Lord in a, in, a, in a city called New Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. And uh, it's real, and it's physical. And one of the things I love about it, I have a lot of friends I have a lot of friends because I've, uh, uh, you know, I've worked for churches for a lot of years who do, who do worship ministry. And I have a lot of friends who, 
who, uh, who, who are worship leaders and, and worship ministry participants, a lot of people who are super-duper passionate about the musical part of what it is to worship God. Worshiping God is so much more than music, but certainly it includes the musical part of worshiping God, and I have some friends that are super-passionate about that, and sometimes when they describe heaven, it sounds like a great big eternal worship stadium concert event. Like we're all going to be in this great big stadium concert venue just singing, 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 singing to Jesus forever. And you know what? We're going to sing to Jesus, and we're going to sing to Jesus a lot. We're going to sing a bunch of new songs and maybe a few old ones. Uh, and that's definitely a part of heaven. Um, but it's not all of it. Heaven is a, a massive city, and everything it takes. Imagine, if you can, it's hard. Imagine a massive city that functions in every way a massive city functions, but with the utter absence of sin and corruption. I, I think we'll have flower shops with the best floral arrangements ever. I think we'll have grocery stores with the best food ever. And I don't know how all that's going to work. Um, the Lord has sketched that, but he's not filled that in in tremendous detail except to tell us it's a city, and you and I both know what a city is. So take a city, make it fantastically architectural as the direct expression of the living God being creative, and then take out all the sin and all the corruption, and then add back again the, the literal descriptions were given in the word of God of foundation stones and gates and marvelous rivers and streets paved with gold and all that. It sounds truly amazing. And we're going to live there forever, those of us who have followed Jesus home to that city, our eternal residence. You know what? Over the weeks that lie ahead, I, uh, I'm likely... I'm likely to cause you to scratch your head a time or two, and I'm likely to even cause you to gently disagree with me a time or two, and again, you and I will both be okay. But I, I'm blessed to have started this study with nine things that are going to happen, and you know what I bet? If you've been a student of God's Word for long, I bet we agree on these nine things. Let's remember that as we, as we fine-tune our conversation a little bit about sequence and, and what I believe the Word of God teaches about that sequence. And let's love one another through this whole study. Hey, if you've listened to this, I appreciate you so much. And I am grateful for you. I'm grateful to Brother Bobby for, for coming in here and setting up this hardware. I'm grateful for the hardware. It seems to have behaved itself. And so this recording is being committed. And uh, again, thank you. And join us on Wednesday nights in the Fellowship Hall for the balance of this study. God bless you. And we're done. We're done.